Hewlett-Packard Company has come up with a whole new way of getting manufactured products from China to Western Europe. Will others follow? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. China's coastal manufacturing zones were getting more and more crowded. Labor was getting pricier and tougher to attract. Ports, too, were suffering from severe congestion, and ships were slowing down. So HP took a new tack. First, it began developing factories in inland and western China. That move gave it access to a fresh pool of labor and allowed workers to remain closer to their families. But now HP had to deal with the additional distance between plant and port, along with the higher cost of over-the-road transport. So it began pursuing the idea of a rail service that would move containers from Chongqing, China, through Kazakhstan, Russia, and Belarus into Europe. My guest today, Ronald Kleiwicht, HP's Director of Logistics for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, talks about the obstacles that the company had to overcome in order to make the service a reality. And he reveals what HP saved in money and time to market by embracing this innovative option. So here is my conversation with Ronald Kleiwicht. Ronald Kleiwicht, welcome to the program. You're welcome. I want to talk about some new strategies that HP is devising for improving its manufacturing capability in China and uh, accessing uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa as well. To start with, when did HP first contemplate making some changes to its manufacturing base in China? I would say probably at the beginning of uh, of this millennium. Uh, historically, manufacturing for, for high-tech electronics, uh, probably not only HP, was mainly in the United States, uh, and in case of Europe, it was uh, mainly in uh, in Ireland and Scotland. And I would say probably around the millennium is when most of the offshoring started, uh, where uh, some of the production started uh, moving into uh, into Asian countries, specifically uh, China. Okay, so you went to China, and like many other companies, I imagine that you concentrated on the coastal areas where most of the industrial base is, correct? Correct. Pretty much on the uh, on uh, on the on the east coast, like uh, Shanghai and like the Shenzhen uh, region. That's correct. Yeah. So, what has prompted you, and when did it prompt you to start thinking about relocating from that area? I would say probably around uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, almost just before the economic crisis, uh, where developments in China. Uh, what we noticed is that some of the uh, the labor costs uh, increased. There was congestion. From a logistics point of view, at some of the ocean ports, uh, other labor elements like unions started to commence on uh, in China, specifically on the East Coast, and that's where we were, uh, yeah, looking for opportunities, working with Chinese government to see what possibilities uh, we would uh, we would have. At the same time, we realized that in many times the labor force was coming from inland China, uh, going to the East Coast for work, uh, and then where there were situations like uh, like now, like the Golden Week 
or Chinese New Year, where a lot of these movements of, of people happened, we came to the conclusion that rather than bringing the people to work, uh, we could potentially bring work to the people. In other words, uh, yeah, making it simpler and, and using the logistics the other way around. Yeah, it makes sense to avoid that massive migration that happens every Chinese New Year. And it also brings the workers together with their families because they couldn't necessarily bring their families to the industrial zones of coastal China, could they? Exactly, Bob, because many times what we also uh, found out is that uh, after such a period, it was many times a situation where not all the workers did come back because they stayed with their families inland China. So that also uh, became an issue. So it was, was quite a hassle. And then by developing other ways of uh, logistics, uh, we came to the conclusion it's better to move goods on the train rather than people on the train. And I assume that China itself was cooperative with that effort because China also wants to move some of its manufacturing ca capability out of that crowded area into the western part of the country. Isn't that correct? Well, absolutely. It's almost like the traditional economic model, uh, right? If you uh, create work, then it, it, it develops the economy. So, yeah, uh, while the uh, economy uh, was already developed on the east coast of China, where China wanted to develop the inland, it uh, works hand in hand. So 2008 or post-2008, you started to make the move. Have you done that? Have you set up some manufacturing capacity away from the coast and more in the western rural part of the country? Yeah, for HP, uh, we have mainly now looking at Chongqing. Chongqing is the largest uh, metropole on this planet. Uh, I would say probably on the computing side and, and to some extent on the printing side, we have a lot of uh, manufacturing, probably more than 50% now, in the Chongqing municipality. And also we have some uh, component manufacturing in, uh, in places like Wuhan, uh, also inland China. So to a large extent, our manufacturing these days is in uh, inland China. Just to give us a sense of the geography, about how far from the coast are those two parts of China? Yeah, to say it in simple terms, in lead time, because we mainly, of course, talk about lead time, if we move now containers to the east coast, to an east coast port like Shanghai or to, to Yantai, uh, close to Shenzhen, we talk about three days, three to four days. What about distance? What's that, what is that approximately? Distance is probably around, yeah, I'm, I'm from Europe, I'm talking kilometers, so it's about, I would say, 1,200 kilometers, so let's say roughly about 800 miles. So did you encounter adequate labor once you moved into those areas? Was it available for you at that time? Well, yeah, Chongqing is the largest metropole right there where they have uh, about 32, 35 million people from a labor perspective that, that definitely was, uh, was attractive to us, besides a lot of other uh, elements right needed for assembly and, uh, and manufacturing. So, yeah, that was an attractive uh, opportunity for us. I take it that in the earlier part of this decade and even before, it would not have even been possible to do that given a lack of infrastructure on China's part to connect those areas with the coast, right? Well, yeah, exactly, because in principle, uh, when you move inland, you look at uh, the infrastructure, moving it from inland then to the, to the coastal ports, which uh, especially for the intra-Asia market and for the, the North America market, the Latin market, uh, you're depending on that. And then for EMEA, for the European uh, Middle Eastern markets, it's in principle the same, and that's where we had to look for creative uh, uh, opportunities. So yes, in the meantime, so when we moved the infrastructure to the East Coast, was already uh, better established, especially rail and to some extent road. But what we had to do for EMEA was, was looking at other uh, alternatives. Just to still focus on that link between the inland and the, and the coast and the East Coast, it of course must have incurred an additional cost to you of moving over land. Was that significant and was that an issue? Well, initially when we made the decision, that was, of course, one of the cost factors we took it into consideration. But what happened almost at the same time, as you know, right, the economic uh, crisis hit. And what happened then is that the ocean lines in particular, 
they decided to move into slow steaming. So while we made calculations to move some of our production inland, taking, taking of course, an accepted additional lead time uh, to go inland, we did not at that moment uh, realize or or count on the fact that the uh, ocean lights started extending their lead times to final destination. And that obviously is something we had to react on. And not only that, at peak periods, and I guess this is something that the ocean carriers have always done, but at peak periods, they would sometimes roll cargo, they would leave it on the docks, they would not be able to take it. So if you've gone to the trouble of shipping containers from the inland all the way to the coast, and you're trying to coordinate that with the arrival of a ship that's going to take it away and prevent having to keep those containers sitting on the dock for a certain amount of time, I imagine that strategy would be rather frustrated by an ocean carrier's refusal to take your containers. Uh, Did that happen? Not so much, I would say. No, I don't think there was any difference uh, when we manufactured on the East Coast and when we moved production to inland, uh, if it comes down to, uh, to in the handling of containers, leaving it at the quay or any other uh, congestion related. That, 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 that was not really uh, an issue because I would say the uh, reliability of the logistics from inland via either rail uh, or barge uh, on the Yangtze River or by road is actually quite reliable. So from a planning point of view, it was not so much uh, an issue from that point of view. Okay, but then you have those several days that you described that it takes to get a container to the coast, and then you have ocean carriers employing these slow steaming techniques. Suddenly you have a much, much longer supply chain in terms of time. I imagine that made it very difficult for you, did it not? Yeah, specifically for, I would say, for Europe, because on the Pacific there was, of course, an impact, let's say, of of maybe two or three days because of slow steaming or super slow steaming, but especially in the case of Europe, where besides the slow steaming, they also started calling more ports in transit, right, when going via the the Suez and going via the Met for for their own operating expenses and and efficiencies, they started uh, optimizing their loops uh, and reducing the speed. So from a supply chain point of view, definitely uh, right conflicting from an overall lead time point of view. So to us, where normally the lead time, let's say from Shanghai to, uh, to Rotterdam was, let's say, 24, 25 days, that already moved up uh, close to 30 days. And then, of course, if you then have uh, an additional lead time for inland, adding another three days, yeah, all of a sudden the lead time becomes quite extensive. So that is where, especially for the European market, we had to react and look for alternatives. And then if you go in the other direction, what about the gigantic ships that some of the steamship lines are starting to employ, carrying upwards of 18,000 20-foot equivalent containers? Those ships, I imagine, call fewer ports because fewer ports can even accommodate them. Uh, So I wonder if that cuts down on your service options because your containers are riding on those massive ships. Well, that is especially today, as a matter of fact, is an issue because there is uh, quite some congestion problems now, especially in ports of destination like Rotterdam, but also in some of the other larger ports, where it simply takes too, more, too much time to take containers from board. And not only that, also the inland infrastructure and, and, and trucks or barges needed for that is now becoming an issue. So absolutely, uh, Bob, that also affects the overall lead time uh, even today. Okay, so now you start to think of overland, western directional types of transportation strategies. You start to think about rail. When did that become a consideration? We looked at this because at the end of the day, if you see what's happening, right, with the Chinese economy uh, developing inland, and at the same time you see uh, Europe growing east with this kind of uh, Eurasia region, so also the central European and Eurasia region becoming more and more importantly, we thought we need to uh, see what, what, what kind of possibilities we have. And there used to be 
a traditional Trans-Siberia routing already, right historically, where especially the, the Japanese and the Korean uh, multinationals started shipping via the, uh, the, the Vostochny or, or Eastern Russian ports uh, using the Trans-Siberia routing. Well, that didn't exist uh, right out of China. We already had some experience, or at least I had some experience before I joined HP, uh, with routings via the north from Shanghai, the Yangtze River Delta, connecting to the Trans-Siberia routing. However, for Chongqing, that was not attractive because, again, the lead times were simply then still too long and too expensive. And that's why we decided to investigate if it was possible to, de to develop more or less a routing from Chongqing uh, via Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus into Europe. Uh, and that is something we started to explore pretty much around 2009 to where we are today in the meantime. So that was the Trans-Euro-Asia Railway, which is not just a rebranding of the Trans-Siberian Railway then. It is a different type of route? It is absolutely a different uh, routing. Uh, yeah, we, we, in simple terms, normally we call the Trans-Siberia routing the northern route, uh, which is uh, still used today to a very large extent, mainly for destinations or to and from, I would say, Beijing, uh, Shanghai, the Yangtze River Delta. And especially now what we call the southern route becomes attractive for more the Pearl, the, the Pearl River uh, Delta and also uh, yeah, the, the inland cities like, uh, like Chongqing, Chengdu and what have you. So did this option exist back in 2009 when you were thinking about it or did it have to be developed in order to meet your needs? Well, there was a rail track, let's call it that way. Uh, there was a rail track uh, mainly uh, for some transports for, to, uh, to the, the west part of China, like Urumqi, and to some extent into Kazakhstan. Uh, other than that, it was not really used. So, yeah, we, we actually had to develop that southern routing, uh, working very closely together with, uh, with the authorities, not only in China, uh, but also in Kazakhstan and in, uh, in Russia, to, uh, to see what was possible and, and explain to them and educate them uh, how this could become a win-win situation, uh, not only for HP, but also for, uh, for the countries uh, uh, related. Getting those three governments to cooperate and then additional governments to sign on and subsequently, that sounds like the potential for a nightmare. And yet it happened? It did. And obviously, <laughs> it didn't happen overnight, uh, Bob, indeed, because, uh, yeah, you have, like I said, there's a lot of education uh, was, uh, was required, not only with the real authorities, but also at the governmental level, and especially the non-coastal countries like Kazakhstan and Russia, and they started to realize how, how the real infrastructure also in the, on the southern route could drive economic value also for their countries. Uh, so in other words, a win-win situation. So while we started investigating in 2009, it, it took almost until, I would say, 2011, until we started really with the first uh, uh, transportation of, uh, of containers, because many things had to be uh, yeah, developed, changed, uh, not only from a technical point of view, but, uh, but even from some of the law and regulations uh, point of view, especially the new custom zone uh, between Kazakhstan, Russia and Belarus in 2011 uh, helped a lot in, uh, in developing this uh, southern route. Were you joined by other major manufacturers in appealing to these countries to develop the route, or was it just HP lobbying for it? It was really uh, HP. We actually tried to get interest also from some other uh, multinational companies, but most of them yeah, didn't really uh, believe in, in the concept. I think there was a lot of skepticism, not only by multinationals, I dare to say also in the logistics industry, because they looked at it as, as it would potentially uh, compete against ocean, where from our point of view, we would never really look at this as a, as a complete uh, competitor for ocean freight. It's more complementary to air and ocean in this case. And in the meantime, since we have developed this, now uh, a lot more multinational shippers are considering and stepping on the train.
Yeah, multinationals who, who weren't there at the beginning but now enjoy the fruits of your labor. Yeah, it requires a level of entrepreneurial spirit. And especially in, in HP, uh, we do recognize logistics as a, uh, as a competitive advantage, uh, uh, right, and, and, and as an important element in the overall supply chain. And this is where we, uh, yeah, we always want to be or try to be the front runner. Um, yeah, and if others then want to follow, uh, in principle, there is no issue with that. But, uh, yeah, we have to be, with the world changing, we have to be creative. I understand there are some issues of differing rail gauges between some of these countries and regions. Was that an issue in developing this railway? Not so much, because this is like a common issue. Even in, in the old days in Europe, we had different gauges right between Spain and the rest of Europe. Um, and since we need to do a border crossing anyway, it's only a matter of hours. And in the total lead time, door-to-door uh, -door of 24 days or about 18 days, container yard, container yard, it's only a matter of six, seven hours that we are moving the containers from one train to another train because we have indeed a different gauge, uh, gauge at the border crossing China-Kazakhstan and uh, from Belarus into Poland. But that is a standard procedure where two trains park next to each other and then with a portal crane, it's a matter of, like I said, a couple of hours and the train moves on. So that is a very efficient operation which is not really affecting the overall lead time. So when did the first uh, train take off with HB containers? Or did you say that was 2011? Yeah, we actually did some first pilots. We first started. Uh, we did a lot of work before that, uh, Bob. We did some dry runs, really explaining again to the authorities what we were planning to do, where we even not only, let's say, at, 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 uh, at senior level authorities like customs in these countries, we also went down to the, to the customs terminals explaining what we're going to do, showing them the, the paperwork, showing them some of, uh, of the product so uh, that, that there would not be any stop when the train would arrive. Uh, when we finally shipped the very first container, we even had to, uh, the Chinese customs at the last minute had to, uh, to, to, to reprogram their system because Intercontinental Rail at that moment was not set up in their system. So a lot of these kind of issues we had to solve. And then finally, the very first trains we had in um, the summer after summer 2011, and then the, the real first structural trains we started in March 2012. Comparing the difference of moving a container from one of those inland manufacturing points in China that HP now has, comparing that moving to the East Coast and then taking a ship all the way around through the Suez and up into Europe as traditionally is done, versus that of moving it on the Trans-Eurasia Railway going west directly from those plants. What's the difference between tra in transit time and cost? The transit time is, uh, and, and because you may have seen many, many press releases from some of the Chinese either cities or, or operators, the, which, which they always count on, uh, on a, what we call port-to-porter, container-yard of maybe 16 days or 17 days. We really measure on a on a door to door. So let me explain that first. So really, we measure from the last container leaving our assembly plant all the way to the last container arriving at our DC. There we count consistently on 24 days door to door, and, and it runs like clockwork. Uh, so it's 24 days, and if we compare that with ocean freight from Chongqing via uh, rail to Yantian, and then, uh, like you said, via the Met and the Suez, etc., all the way via Port of Rotterdam to our DC in the Netherlands. It takes, that takes about 35, 36 days. So in principle, we save about 12 days uh, lead time using, uh, using the rail. So that is, uh, that is an advantage. And if we ship to Czech Republic, which we nowadays do, because we have a, a regional manufacturing plant there as well, we even take out another two to four days uh, in that respect. And uh, from a cost point of view, yeah, it depends. Right now you see uh, ocean freight rates creeping up again. We normally calculate in percentages. I cannot disclose any rates in the matter. 
But we normally look at a, a difference of roughly 20 to 25 percent difference, air versus uh, sorry, ocean versus um, the rail. But we expect that that gap may go further down if there will be more balance on this train westbound and eastbound. Because so far it was mainly us, SHP, shipping volumes westbound with hardly any volumes coming back. This year, as a matter of fact, the first year we see quite significant volumes going back from Europe into China as well for the same reasons. Um, and that is a nice development because that will further uh, balance and therefore develop this real solution and make it obviously more efficient as well. Wait a minute, you're saying that 24% at present favors ocean or favors overland? You, you mean the, the, the percentage I mentioned, Bob? Yeah, which is, which is cheaper right now? Which option now, is ocean, cheaper? Ocean, you, if you, you have to really look at this, Bob, from a supply chain point of view. So from a rate perspective, ocean freight rate remains cheaper than real. But if you take into consideration the lead time, and especially for a high-value uh, product, high-value shippers, this is where the train remains attractive or becomes attractive because then the lead time and inventory carrying cost might become important. So, yeah, rail is more expensive than, uh, than, than ocean. But this is if you take into consideration then the lead time from an overall supply chain cost point of view, rail is cheaper than, uh, than ocean in that respect. Okay, I want to touch briefly upon one more transportation innovation that HB has, has been involved in, and that is the use of Greece's port of Piraeus as a gateway from Asia into Europe, Middle East, and Africa. That's an interesting choice. One doesn't normally think of that as being a, a major alternative port. When did you think of that, and what are the advantages of that? Well, we looked uh, a while ago already at that time at, uh, at the Greek ports when we uh, started our manufacturing plant in, in Turkey. So I'm talking about the period probably just before the economic crisis, 2008-2009, uh, because we noticed that uh, Costco, the Chinese uh, shipping line, was doing quite some investments uh, right, or in, 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 in the privatization of the ocean ports in, in Greece. But then, of course, the economic crisis hit. And we kind of uh, yeah, didn't pay attention uh, that longer on, uh, on Piraeus. At the same time, we started developing the, uh, the Transirasia rail solution. And then when, uh, I think about two years ago, we looked at, uh, at the situation again, especially because of Greece being in, uh, in, in, in obviously a lot of periods right where economically didn't go very well, uh, realizing that, uh, that Costco was still investing heavily in that port. We did uh, see the numbers going up significantly. That's where we started investigating uh, the possibility because Piraeus, from a, from a geographic location point of view, is almost opposite the Suez Channel. And again, right with the economy uh, growing, and especially Central Eastern Europe and uh, the Eurasia uh, CIS countries, Piraeus is, is very nicely located. And then also taking into consideration the Maghreb and Levant uh, region, the North Africa region. And after we investigated the, that geographic location and the developments of the port of Piraeus, Meeting again also with the government in Greece to understand their longer-term strategy on Piraeus. Yeah, jointly together, uh, we, we had a kind of a shared vision how this could uh, be developed. And that what, then what became very importantly is that the Greek government decided to adopt what we call the VAT law, uh, which is an economic law, into their national law. And then the, the benefits Greece had uh, was almost the same as what the Netherlands has. Uh, with regards to, uh, to uh, as an import country into the EC. And then since then, we have been uh, working and further developing the port of Piraeus, where nowadays we are managing pretty much 17 countries uh, via Piraeus, which previously uh, we managed via the traditional uh, northern ports in, uh, in Europe. For a transit time savings, as I understand it, of between 5 and 10 days. Correct, depending on, on destination. Because you should imagine where in the past an ocean vessel 
would go all the way around Gibraltar, all the way north to, let's say, Rotterdam or Hamburg, then most of the DCs are in the, uh, the Benelux or in the Ruhr area in Germany. And then from there, you took it all the way back again to Spain, to Italy, even Greece. So what we do now, we pretty much have a line between Northern Europe, Southern Europe. So especially, I would say, the, the, the Southern countries, uh, South, yeah, South East, Southwest and Southeast, and the North African countries, we serve uh, via Piraeus. And anything north, we still serve by Transasia Rail or the traditional ocean freight via Rotterdam. Okay, we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you one last question, and we're back to China for a moment. With the rising cost of labor in China and some of the complications of that uh, long supply chain, why not join other manufacturers and leave China altogether and uh, reshore or nearshore or shift your manufacturing to another country entirely? Well, it is. We are like any other multinational. We're always investigating, let's say, new possibilities, right? Depending on on, on infrastructure developments, depending on economic developments, and 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 this is where we always continue to investigate. And there are definitely potential opportunities. And and I also dare to say, right, it's not only labor at the end of the day, right, which drives the the supply chain. Uh, these days, more and more levels of robotization, right, are coming into place where then automatically, right, logistics uh, becomes a more important role. You also have to deal then with sourcing of raw materials, right? And, and, and at the moment, you can move your production outside China, but then what you're going to do with uh, sourcing your supplies? So it's not that simple, not that easy. doesn't mean that we may not consider in future, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of elements, as you know, in the supply chain, uh, right, we, we need to consider. So, yeah, there will be a uh, uh, probably ongoing development, if you will, with nearshoring uh, or offshoring, and if I talk for the, re- for the, the region I'm responsible for, uh, right, there's another sub-region which is developing very fast, uh, which is the, the Africa, Sub-Sahara uh, Africa region, and who knows, right, what opportunities that could bring us in the future. Well, it's been great hearing about some of the innovative steps that HP is taking to improve its transportation system and its supply chain in Europe and uh, in Asia. Ronald Kleiwick, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Bob, and thank you very much for your interest. That was my conversation with Ronald Kleiwick of HP, talking about the company's innovative use of the Trans-Eurasia Railway. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where all of our episodes are now available. Just search for Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.